This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Buying a home can feel like navigating uncharted waters. Redfin agents can help. They'll answer your questions with honest advice so you know exactly what you're getting into. They'll also help you tour as many homes as you want and show you what it takes to make a winning offer. With a Redfin agent on your side, you can sail straight to your dream home. Local expertise from Redfin. That's real estate done right. Tour subject to property and agent availability. Virginia Office Falls Church, VA. 844-759-7732. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. My name is Dave Hanratty and there will be no encore. Welcome to episode 269 of the No Encore Music Podcast on the Headstuff Podcast Network. I'm back on the main microphone. Just try and stop me, Craig Fitzpatrick. There he is, back in the driving seat, uh, Craig Fitzpatrick. Yeah, back on mic too, uh, which I'm very happy about. <laughs> low pressure, low stakes. Um, cruise control, you might say. But yeah, good to have you back, man. Thanks, man. Thanks to Zara Hedeman for filling in. Uh, yeah, she she is a delight and is welcome back on the show anytime. As per the <laughs> the uh, well, she put that text into our into our Google Doc, so we need to change the locks on that thing. So you know, one hundred percent. But no, she was great as always, and it was a very very good episode. I very much enjoyed it. Uh, I also very much enjoyed the episode that dropped a couple of days ago on the feed. If you haven't got to it yet, listener, it's an interview with Merle and Kobina, their new project Regera. Their new single, Pressure, is out now as of this podcast dropping. Go back and listen to that interview. Craig and I recorded it last Friday evening. It was very nice indeed, but now I am, in fact, back 
you know, in in cruise control, I guess, you know, main control. Where you belong, Dave. Back where I belong. Never leave me again. On this music podcast voyage that we we journey on together. So on this episode, though, um, we're going to be reviewing the new album from Brockhampton. That's coming in the middle of the show. And they did an interview in The Guardian there uh, last month in which they said they're sick of the boy band tag. They no yeah. longer want to be thought of as a boy band. And that's why so, we're doing our top five best and worst boy band songs this week on No Encore. That's later in Classic the show. Classic No Encore move, just slightly behind the times. As soon as they abandon that tag, we're, we're picking it up and running with it. Yeah, we're not letting them escape it, essentially. And, yeah. you know, it's not about not letting you escape, listener, but unfortunately every week we do have to plug our Patreon, so let's do it. It's patreon.com slash noencore if you want to help support the show. Lots of people have, lots of people do. We're very, very grateful to them. Throw us the price of a pint or the price of a expensive vinyl. I don't know. It's entirely your call. In return, you'll get bonus episodes. You get episode previews every single week. You get playlists. There's a rake of them on there. And of course, mm. our undying gratitude. Thank you to everyone who listens to the show. Thank you to everyone who supports the show. Patreon.com slash noencore. If you want to go the extra mile, you don't have to. But if you want to, you know, you're welcome to. However, if you're new to the show, there is a format. And the format always starts like this. <laughs> Hey, you heard about the good news? It's the news, and unfortunately to kick off the news section this week, it's bad news. Craig mentioned it briefly last week that DMX, famed rapper, was in a bad way, and unfortunately last Friday evening, the news broke that he has passed away at the age of 50. For more, here's Craig Fitzpatrick. Yeah, I mean, it, it didn't look good at all when we were recording. Um, we stated on that episode, you'll probably know more uh, than we do as you listen, and yeah, the news had broken at that stage and just... No age whatsoever, um, but the prognosis seemed like, you know, if he had survived, he would have been in no great state in terms of quality of life. So just sad all around and um, huge outpouring of kind of tributes and kind of people remembering the importance of DMX, what a huge figure he was. I keep thinking of um, back to being about 10 or 11 years old and I was at my local amenity centre. It was post-football, bunch of kids, and we were debating who was the better rapper DMX or Jay-Z and I think it was unanimous it was DMX at the time <laughs> sorry Jay-Z but um yeah he was huge he was like you know slightly pre-Eminem he was the guy and you know it, it's a this weird dichotomy with X where anytime you think of him um over the last few years and just the character of him it's kind of always with some concern and uh, you're worried about kind of what state he's in or you know he was a guy that has been through a lot then whenever you stuck on the music, just all those concerns faded away, all of your concerns faded away, and just, it's been great uh, the last few days just reliving that really life-affirming music. Yeah, incredibly high energy as well, and uh, as you kind of allude to as oh, well, yeah. a man not without his demons, sadly. Um, I will say that, like, I can't sit here and pretend I have encyclopedic knowledge of DMX. I don't. It's very much a case of, like what I like, probably didn't delve in as much as I should have. And, you know, yeah, I'm probably going to be that guy now who goes, oh, yeah, like, legacy rapper now, legacy artist. I'll go back and check it now when I stupidly shouldn't have. I mean, I saw, like, the Woodstock 99 performance, which was fucking incredible and has done the rounds quite a lot lately. Um, essentially, in lieu of me being further awkward, I have tasked uh, the great Mango of Mango and Mathman fame to mm. say a few words about DMX, which he duly did. He duly delivered when I asked him that at the weekend. So at the end of this news section... 
I'm going to play that for you in full because he had a lot to say. I thought it was very insightful, very thorough. And DMX in particular was an artist who I know meant an awful lot to Mango. So he was the first person I thought of. But um, an incredible personality, an incredible character. Uh, and, and as you say, Craig, with the the outpouring of respect has been kind of endless. Like it's been a week of tributes. It's been like like a lot of people kind of... Uh, I'd say the argument is being made and I, I know it comes with the territory when someone dies and when they die young in music as well but like a lot of people and this is kind of something I would have thought as well that like underrated I mean like didn't quite get the credit he deserves at the time yeah um, I guess at the time you know massive selling um, lots of chart hits uh, I'm not sure the critical critical acclaim was quite there he was all about the kind of energy I suppose and the vibe he transmitted he wasn't like the kind of rapidly rap kind of uh, wordsmith I suppose so he was hugely influential like now he seems like groundbreaking in that regard but I guess at the time maybe people were a bit snooty about what he put out and I guess maybe the years in the wilderness um, just he wasn't always top of mind but the music kind of stands stands for itself um, and he's finally getting getting his flowers yeah, like I say, later in the show, you'll hear from Mango in depth, so stay tuned for that. Not the only kind of depressing or devastating news story of the week, though, unfortunately, out there in the world of music, because we had to listen to this. That's a pretty mask, but never take a chance. Take the stupid desk, joke a Okay, that's uh, Mick Jagger teaming up with everyone's favourite, Dave Grohl, for a song together Nicest called... Nicest Man in Rock. Well, I mean, the rap Not sheet... Mick Jagger. The rap sheet probably is, a prick. The rap sheet is growing for Dave Grohl, but like... Jesus Christ, this is a song that they teamed up together called Easy Sleazy. It came out of nowhere during midweek. It has racked up almost 1.4 million views on YouTube in the space of about fucking less than 48 hours, which I'm very, I'm very disappointed by. Yeah, much to your dismay around the world. You were crestfallen. I'm really upset by it. So this is a lockdown song. You may have gathered from those lyrics in which Mick Jagger refers to doing a TikTok dance, signing up for a samba class, uh, getting hooked up to Zoom. And, you know, escaping prison walls, etc., cleaning the kitchen sink. There's worse to come uh, in this song, which has been sold as, like, the infectious easy... This is from the press release. The infectious easy sleazy is every inch a song of our times, full of caged energy, a rock and roll attitude and tongue-in-cheek satirical messaging. MJ muses about the life we've all been living. He's reclaiming that. (laughs) Why not? Probably fair enough. (laughs) With deliciously dark sardonic humour. He reflects on a world of Zoom calls, home in these prison walls. Ponzi books, which I think is a bit a bit over the line. Like, what are you saying? Fake applause and too much TV. With well, optimism yeah. and change in sight, he looks forward to the world beyond lockdown and the garden of earthly delights that lies beyond. So it's a satire number about the state of the, state of the world right now, Craig. As a matter of fact, right? So I tweeted this out because he's got like lines as well that, you know, like Bill Gates is in his bloodstream now that he's got the vaccine and this kind of stuff and I'm just flat yeah. earth and whatever. And like, obviously, clearly tongue in cheek. He's clearly not meaning it. But I just put it up on Twitter and I was like, Jesus fucking Christ. And someone came along, right? So, someone came along. A reviewer for uh, the National Broadcaster, RTE, came along and replied to me and said, oh, like, did you see the bit where it says satirical? It's like, yeah, mate, uh, 
I'm aware of the concept of satire. This is trash one way or the other. Did you suffer through all of it, by the way? Yeah, it's pretty fucking horrendous. Um, I mean, at least he is not a Van Morrison type in terms of his thinking. At least this is satire, do you know what I mean? So there is that. But, oh, Jesus. I mean, the tune is pure pub rock. It, it kind of sounds like a, a Hives offcut, like something they just knocked out in practice. And he is just doing his, like, you know what I'm up to? <laughs> I'm like clever. It's it, it's very much in keeping with, do you remember we got England Lost a couple of years ago, which was his take on Brexit? So this is his take on lockdown. And it's just like, he thinks he is like fucking arch satirist Mick Jagger and it is not working whatsoever I mean it's infectious in the way that like you might say it's not jumping Jack Flash infectious it's like oh that looks infectious you might want to get it looked at it's terrible I feel, they, I felt sick listening to it yeah no it, it is and the video is horrible as well the video is like him in like a big kind of I guess practice room and Dave Grohl like you know spliced in and it's just in your face camera work you know going up to him falling over and just really obnoxious Dave Grohl I was going to say, do you, just on Dave Grohl, do you reckon he's like, he's into this, he thinks it's good, or is he like, it's one of my heroes saying, let's do a track, and now I'm fucking stuck in a room with him as he dances about coming up with lyrics? No, I think Grohl's into it. His quote that I was going to yeah. get to is, he says, it's hard to put into words what recording the song with Sir Mick means to me. It's beyond a dream come true. Just when I thought life couldn't get any crazier, and it's the song of the summer, without a doubt. Oh. Fucking horrific. Horrific. Who is this for? Like, I, I just, I just, the YouTube comments, like, and people being like, you know, now that's a song, you know, that's a rock song. It's like, yeah, it's fucking horrific. It's, it's becoming very clear that Keith Richards was the <laughs> creative talents in that band, right? Like, Keith wouldn't have let this be released under the Stones banner. All of mixed stuff. I mean, we talked about a solo output before. So dodgy. And well, like, he's clearly a smart dude, but he's, he's have no, no gifts in terms of like, lyrical satire it's just so poor so poor it's uh, not a great week for rock's elder statesman though roger taylor (laughs) drummer of queen is losing his mind craig he's planning to install a 20 foot high statue of freddie mercury in his garden how do you feel about this i thought this was quite sweet maybe i'm losing my mind as well (laughs) i was like you know like (laughs) the story ends with him saying like you know freddie would have found it hilarious and i was like you know what i think he would have isn't that nice like he's you know an aging rocker he's kind of getting into his twilight years reminiscing about friends lost and thinking this gigantic statue that was originally created for we will rock you uh is just like sitting around somewhere in like a shed that's the part that Um, i don't like because it sounds like you know the intro to this story suggests that he's getting one made from scratch and he's commissioning this thing and it's a passion project maybe he was involved with the design but no instead it's we're chucking out this massive bronze statue of freddie mercury and he's like you want to I'll put it in my garden, I suppose. Oh, Do you have anywhere for it? Yes, I'm the rich fucking rock star, Roger Taylor. I have plenty of ample room. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a... I wonder after like three months, does he start regretting it? And he's like, you know, having his morning coffee, just gazing out into the garden. And there's Freddy still there's Fred. staring back in at him. Like, <laughs> But hang on, there's more to the story, right? So uh, I, I love how like this, like he clearly sent out this press release to The Sun who reported on it. Taylor is now reportedly planning an extensive renovation of the garden. Like, why is this a news story uh, of his Surrey property and planning to make the statue its centrepiece? According to The Sun, Taylor is currently seeking planning permission for the works, which would see, also see the installation of a pool house, a bar, and a jacuzzi. 
he previously installed the statue in his rockery, but faced a subsequent dispute with planners. Quote, it was in a warehouse costing money. So I said, why don't they just put it on a lorry and bring it here and we'll put it in the garden? So, I mean, it's kind of it a sounds bit more like, like he's like if it's a centerpiece thing, is he going to open it to the public? Is it going to be like Freddy Wood or something? Start charging people to come in and have a look at this gigantic bronze statue. It sounds, like he's opening, nice it sounds like he's opening a Shabin that, that would be shut down summarily by members they of Angarda Shiakana. They have milked Freddy for all he's worth over the past few decades, so, you know, Why go not? for it, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, big week for the UK, of course. You know, everyone's getting back in great, the beer yeah. gardens, you know. Everyone's having, a, everyone's having a great time. Well done, Boris. <laughs> Flawless <laughs> reputation. Uh, in celebration of this, Spotify have shared a newly curated vaccine songs playlist that they hope listeners will tune into to celebrate getting their vaccination. They want to get vaccines people. Vaccines must have been rubbing their hands. There we go. They're not on it. They're not on it. The vaccines are not on this 25 song playlist. I don't know how that happens, but they're not oh in my it. God. It's outstanding, right? So this is all about getting people, quote, jazzed for the jab, which is quite the fucking... Again, Craig, you work in advertising. You know, is that good? Jazzed for the jab? I mean, alliteration always works, doesn't it? <laughs> it's proven. <laughs> so, um, Science. Well, yeah, it's you, you might be wondering what's on here, right? Because if the vaccines aren't aren't on there, who are? So you got Lady Gaga's The Cure, Pat Benatar's Hit Me With Your Best Shot, uh, you've got ABBA's Gimme, 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 A Man After Midnight, which I guess is referring to the fact that everyone's going to go hog wild when it comes to romance in the oh, post. Oh, is it? I thought it was maybe just in reference to the fact that they might be opening 24-hour um, vaccination centres and you, you'd like the guy that administers it could be at like one in the morning. No, I'm pretty sure. No, it's a, sounds, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty sure yes. it's a sex thing. Craig. Your way sounds <laughs> fair enough. It usually is. So yeah, it's not very good. But also, also in here, which I found bizarre, was um, the fray: how to save a life, which is first of all a really depressing maudlin song, and second of all is about the singer's like tough time when he was in a youth center or something when he was a kid. Yeah, with some suicidal guy that he was kind of mentoring. Um, all of these songs feel very close to the bone no pun intended but like they're all like why go in so heavy on like the vaccine like the the syringe shot based kind of technique like lots of people <laughs> don't like getting shots whatsoever you know they can be squeamish the whole it's not really about the process it's about the fact that you can get on with your life so surely they should have gone for like life affirming stuff more gimme 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 i guess less the cure Okay, well, can I give you, give you, give you the microphone to tell us about a man who has responded to some spurious claims made by a Hollywood Academy Award winning actress? What are we talking about, Craig? With a link like that? Yeah, sure. It's Moby. He's back. He's um, promoting Reprise, um, which is a new album featuring reinterpretations of his catalogue. And also um, an unfortunately titled surrealist documentary that accompanies it, Moby Doc. Um, which you won't kind, stop banging on. Kind of <laughs> like that name. It's it's terrible enough to be good. Yeah. Isn't he related to um, the guy that wrote Moby Dick? I think that's why he took the name anyway. It's just one of the kind of many pretentious things about Moby. But yeah, it's, it's you know, it's a pun. So we'll give him uh, pointers there. Um, inevitably, within this interview, subject of his 2019 memoir, Dennis Philip Hart, came up. Um, this was, of course, we covered on show uh, quite a lot of the time. The book that claims that he dated Natalie Portman when she was quite young, college age. Um, 
that new portal quickly came out and said no that did not happen and actually our interactions um i remember them quite differently the behavior from moby was quite creepy uh moby apologized uh the book tour was cancelled he said listen i'm gonna go away for a while he's back now um it has been a while <laughs> it has been a while and the question is posed so does he regret writing about his experience with portman um so is this the part where one of us reads out Moby's lines, which could then be manipulated and used against us? Uh, Go yeah. for it, Dave. Oh, okay. I'll do it. Will <laughs> I? Fine. Um, so he says, A part of me wishes I could spend the next two hours deconstructing the whole thing, but there's levels of complexity and nuance I can't really go into, which is a great start because you're automatically yeah. playing a chess move there. Uh, there's a part of me, Moby, not Dave Hanrady, in hindsight that wishes I hadn't written the book, but then sales figures indicate that not many people actually read it. Uh, very good. Uh, he says he, he it's he actually does evoke a chess move. He he references a chess move. He says, you know, you're asking me to open up such a can of worms. It reminds me of my favorite chess move, which my uncle taught me, where you move your knight so that it puts the king in check, but it's also going to take the castle, also known as the rook, Moby. There's no good way to answer. One option's terrible. The other is really terrible. So if we were playing chess right now, this is the part where I pick up my phone and pretend I've got an emergency call. Wow. So, I mean, talk about dodging you know but i mean he, that's yeah that's like his version of Cantona's when the seagulls follow the drawler speech isn't it <laughs> like, it really is so he did eventually kind of get into it because like he was asked would you call your interactions with Natalie portman creepy as she did and he said i wouldn't use that word but when i was an out of control alcoholic and drug addict i definitely acted selfish and incredibly inconsiderate towards family members and friends and girlfriends and people i worked with but again part of the 12-step program is that it's a program of rigorous honesty i don't want to sound too much like a cliche aging musician in southern california a bit late but the idea of genuinely looking at your actions and making amends for them is a process that i believe i've gone through pretty thoroughly and it does make me sad that I probably didn't don't do an effective enough job trying to communicate the addiction struggle and contextualize the stories that way. This is political level deflection, isn't it? I mean, this is just not actually answering any questions. Yeah, he's kind of saying, well, there's a lot of context that I didn't actually write about in the book, so you'd have no way of knowing about it. But um, now I'm kind of <laughs> shoehorning it in um, so we can quickly move on from the subject. Like, I don't know. I don't know. We don't know what went on. It seemed quite bad. He's, you know, he's been through the mill for sure. And I do kind of agree with that thing of like him talking about it, going through a process and making amends. And this was a long time ago and I hope he's in a better place. But um, at the very least, highly embarrassing story that's going to follow him forever. Not great. Yeah. Um, I can't speak for anyone. I can't speak for Moby. I can't speak for Natalie Portman. I can't speak for uh, Phoebe Bridgers, but I get the opinion that she probably wouldn't be a big Moby fan. But she is back in the news this week, or rather... Her infamous guitar is, Craig. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the whole SNL guitar smash, we mocked it quite a bit. Um, or said, you know, it just wasn't pulled off, you know. I thought we had critical nuance and dexterity on that one. Well. No mockery here, sir. Yeah, maybe. A part of me wishes I could spend the next two hours deconstructing what we said, to be honest. There was <laughs> levels of complexity and nuance that I really can't go into, Dave. <laughs> But essentially what we said was, it was kind of lame the way she did it, uh, but actually she's had the last laugh because she's put up for auction for a very good cause, uh, for GLAD. Uh, it's gone for $101,000 um, and yeah, we'll we'll go towards the cause of protecting LGBTQ um, rights and the community in general. And big shout out to the dude that um, is supervising producer of the GLAD Media Awards. Oh, this guy's just a, watching it on, he's yeah, a quote machine, this guy. <laughs> He's good. Anthony Ramos, um, 
he basically like saw it happening on TV and was like, I wonder what's going to happen to that guitar and made it happen. So a lot of moxie on him. So fair play. Yeah, he was saying that like um, when he went to bed over the weekend, like the, when the auction was happening, he was like, it was around 18,000. I was like, that's a great number. I was kind of hoping yeah. it gets 25. Then I woke up and it was 40, then 50, then 80 and finally over 100. Obviously, we were very pleasantly surprised. I'm so thankful. Someone wants to support our work and wanted that guitar so badly. So glad is not saying who who got the winning bid. It's a whole private sure. affair. But he says, obviously, it's someone who's either a huge Phoebe Bridges fan or someone who's really into broken guitars or someone who really wants to help us accelerate our work for the LGBTQ community. And hopefully it's someone who checks all three of those boxes. Uh, and he's like, <laughs> and then he says, like, oh, I'm sure it'll look great on a wall or something. So I hope it was David Crosby. Wouldn't that be cool? He's going to put it through a fucking shredder or something. And that would be very David Crosby. Yeah, <laughs> I like that idea. That's canon in my head now. End this mess once and for all. Um, and we're going to end this news section momentarily. But of course, we must take a visit to the most visited corner of the show. Hit the music, Adam. Attention, everyone. One, one. Shut up. Craig on Kanye. Yeah. So Billboard is reporting that Netflix has paid... 30 million dollars for the rights to a career spanning Kanye docuseries and um, that's your update thanks Craig Happy appreciate that, that. yeah no it was good it was good stuff brief and unclear concise and exciting all at once so Thank before you. we close off the news section as teased at the top of it I hit up Mango of Mango and Mathman. Check out their album Casual Work. Check out everything that they do together. They're great. Mango, rapper from Dublin, huge DMX fan, massive inspiration on his work to this day. And I wanted to get him to, to basically pay tribute to the man, you know, kind of give us an insight into his relationship with the music and to what DMX means to a lot of people. So I asked Mango, right, you know, mindful that this is a podcast, mindful that we often ramble on in here. And I said, can you give me like five minutes max? Mango, being Mango, a man of many words, a man who doesn't do things by half, gave me three times that amount. However, it's really fucking good. It's really, really interesting, really, really insightful. I want you to listen to what Mango has to say. He's a cool guy, he knows his stuff, and here is Mango talking about DMX on No Encore. How's it going? I'm Mango from uh, Mango Matt Man. Um, and uh, Dave asked me, I don't know, not to eulogize, but maybe say some words about DMX um, after his passing last week. Growing up, DMX wasn't even near my top 10. A new party up. X gonna give it to you, get it on the floor, Rough Riders Anthem, you know, the usuals. Just from like mix CDs or whatever like that, you know, he was just, he was about. In fact, actually, the first time I ever heard DMX, I was enamored with his voice. And how madly unique he was. For someone who, like, when rap back in, at that time, the turn of the last century, where rap music was so, every MC sounded very unique and different and had a different flow and voice and style. Which was more, I know, it was more uh, ex- expected of artists that you couldn't come out sounding like anybody else. DMX was the most unique sounding rapper of his time for flow, delivery, what he rapped about, how he looked, the sound of the music. It was, when a record came on, you knew it was DMX before he, he started his first verse, you know? Uh, the first time I ever heard him, Dave loved this now, was I had, I must have been about nine or 10 and 
I got the, I got a dodgy copy, like a fake copy of, uh, Limbiscuit chocolate flavor, something in the hot dog water, something like that. I can't remember. He's going to kill me now. I was kind of into Limbiscuit at that age. You know what I mean? And, uh, on the, the remix to Roland, the air raid assault remix was Redman, Method Man and DMX and DMX bodies this bodies this song like out of nowhere you're like you're kind of oh yeah it's a bit of rap and whatever whatever and then dmx comes on and that he does better on that song than fred durst and well, which isn't that hard but you know what i mean like in, including everybody in the rapper he stood out miles and i was i read the liner notes when i when i seen a real copy of the cd in someone else's house like maybe a mate's gaff and i was like dmx this fan is fucking crazy man so that was the first time I was like, who was this fella? So anytime his music came on or I seen him on a CD or a mix or something like that, I, I'd, I'd always listen to it and give it, give it that uh, attention. So yeah, new metal got me into DMX, which they will love. But, uh, you know, growing up as a teenager, you know, I got Grand Champ when I swapped the CD with a young fella in another estate up the road. And, you know, I liked it and it was a good album. I was more into Tupac and 50 Cent and, and, and other rappers. Not that I disliked them, but I don't know. I just was like, yeah, it's good. But, uh, I think I just got like the, the last great album he put out. And then obviously, you know, the media fire, uh, days, the Dap Hip, the Zippy Share days. Uh, I got, you know, I just downloaded all of his stuff and, uh, eventually bought all the CDs because I love them that much. But flesh is my flesh, blood is my blood. Uh, it's dark as hell as hot, the Great Depression just blew me away. His voice, his anger, um, the dichotomy of who he was. And you could really feel like this guy was not just speaking about, he never talked about how much he had or how much money he was and how great he was. He rapped about something deeper, something harder, something more. He rapped from the soul. Do you know what I mean? He didn't rap to the mirror. He rapped from the heart and uh, I think that's why his music has lasted so long, his impact and his legacy. You know, he clearly had so much trouble in his life with addiction and, and his own demons and just not being able to fit into society and I think that reflected in his music and unfortunately the, the beauty and the, the, the course of it was that it made his art and his music so much more authentic, so much more real, so much more you know, it just, you, you had to pay attention to it. There was nobody who was matching his energy, his aggression, his stage presence. Um, but then he would have like songs on his albums about like the devil taking his soul. And, you know, you listen to these things and they go, oh, there were, there were concepts or whatever, whatever. But then you look into his life and he really felt like he was in his own head battling two roads between evil and good and knowing that the evil he did wasn't truly who he was it, you know he was nearly giving it to us literally and we thought they were just concept records but he was talking about the dark man inside him and uh as much as that kind of sold records as a as a as a as a what what record companies might use gimmicks but it was when you look back and you listen to it now knowing everything you know about dmx it, it's astounding and it's genius level of, of, of rap music. I mean, you study, I mean, the BT did like a, 
kind of biopic about Rough Riders and DMX and to really look about how tough and heart-wrenchingly awful his growing up was. He was a child and his ma brought him to a, brought him up upstate New York somewhere and he said, she said, oh, do you like this place? He said, yeah, yeah, it's all right. And he, and she just left him there. And it was a group home. It was a boys home. Um, we like industrial schools here. Um, and that was from the day he was seven. His mom just didn't want to deal with him. Beat the life out of him. And from a child area was institutionalized in the prison system in America during the crack epidemic years of the mid eighties to the mid nineties, late nineties. And he continued up doing, you know, prison time up until, you know, two years ago. The man was, you know, as Swisby said recently in his passing was that the man sometimes he went to jail to be free for peace and quiet. When the world got too much and crazy for him, he went to jail so he could go back and just not have to deal with the world. And this is where he gets, you know, possibly, you know, a lot of his drug addictions, having no family, no loved ones. He's living in abandoned houses, robbing people with dogs. And, but at the same time, he wanted so much more and, and rap music was that for him. The fact that he went borough to borough, neighborhood to neighborhood and became, before he was signed, before he had a record deal, before he probably had lights working in his flat, he was known New York wide for battling the toughest and best rappers in any borough. In fact, it was a 50 grand battle set up between him and Jay-Z before the two of them popped off that there's no, there's no video recording. There might be some video recording of DMX, but Jay-Z's team made people turn the cameras off. But he was that respected. He was nearly in a group with, with, with Jay-Z, with DMX, uh, with Jay-Z and Jarrell with DMX called Murder Inc. And that's the level this guy was at. He came from absolutely nothing. He saved, he effectively saved Def Jam from going bankrupt and went in three years, four albums, multi platinum. From everything's in his life, those dice rolled against him from being institutionalized in a boy's home with severe trauma and drug, and drug addictions to reaching the highest level that possibly any rappers ever will. Jay-Z wasn't posting the numbers when he was doing them. And, you know, you get to a certain age and, you know, you fall back and he was never into, he was never into social media. He was hardly ever on his and he kind of faded away with his drug addictions and prison terms and kind of fell out of the consciousness of, of society from not being online uh, and not being in the game and now and then you'd see him on some program and he was looking fucked up or, you know, oh, it's, it's funny that he was doing Rudolph the Red Nose Rain down. People were kind of laughing at it for the wrong reason. Whereas he was just genuinely a nice dude who wanted to do something funny, but people couldn't separate this tough, barking, lunatic rapper from actually being a, a, a father of, I don't know, he's fucking loads of kids. You think he's as many kids as bleeding, screaming Jay Hawkins. But there was so much love that he had where he was putting prayers on his, on his, uh, his albums. Like to have those albums and that subject matter and to start and finish and sometimes have in the middle of them prayers and genuine prayers. If you listen to the prayers that he puts in his music, you can see that this is a man not only praying for himself, but praying for his fans and the world and his people and people going through hard times. And I think people who are, I don't know, outcasts or weirdos or people who are going through tough times, you can put the MX on. You go to the gym, 
and you put the MX on, you're hitting your personal best. You are in a club and everyone's everyone's there in the top and off, and somebody puts on party up a rough riders anthem and shut down. Still to this day, these these records are twenty, twenty one, twenty two years of age, and they still sound as fresh as they do. And I'm devastated he has passed away. And I knew, I think we all knew at some stage that DMX probably wouldn't live to be an old man. And I was up in my room, I was on the laptop, I was doing a bit of work. And Tara came up the stairs and she knocked on the door. She told me the news. Now I knew he was, he was in trouble. He was in a vegetative state from an, an overdose. But she told me he died and I got a couple of texts on my phone because people knew how much he meant to me. Because throughout the last 10 years, I'd listened to a lot of DMX's music. And as I said, he was not my top 10 growing up. But by the time I was in my, you know, I was really rapping and really making rap records and studied his music. He's in my top five and always will be. And I'm sad that another person in my top five is dead, has passed away. Everything he spit was from the heart. Everything he spit was from the soul. There was never a lie told out of his mouth. He never faked the funk once. Everything he said, you know, he meant with true. It was just genuine and he meant it with every fiber of his being and he spat it with every fiber of his being. And I was listening to the No Uncle, uh, no, the No Uncle podcast, of course, but I was listening to the uh, Drink Champs uh, podcast with Noriega and recently with DMX and he was talking about his new album and having, you know, he said he was going to get Bono on it. <laughs> he had Usher on it. He had the Griselda lads on it. He even had a verse from Pop Smoke. Um, and I felt like, wow, like, and all of a sudden he was coming back into consciousness of people and younger people were starting to go, man, this DMX file is fucking unbelievable. And I really felt like he was going to have this kind of, I suppose, Johnny Cash come back, you know, the rebirth of all of a sudden, like, yeah, he kind of faded off and had, you know, drug problems and everyone was like, oh yeah, remember him? And then kind of realized, actually, no, your man's fucking cool. And I really felt like it, it might have just came back and, you know, especially after the verses that he had with Snoop Dogg. And I was really, it was really glad to see that, to see him get his flowers while he was still here and, and for people to really show how much they still loved him, you know? Cause it's a long time since he played the Woodstock 99 and played the fucking half the planet. And I'm sure there's been many a tough time between then and the versus TV, but I'm glad that he got that and it was still known that he was loved and appreciated. I am. Um, and I really felt that, but unfortunately, you know, he the, the, the demons inside him. And I hope that he is at peace now because his music is timeless. And there's a lot of stuff in that music that, yeah, when we look back, I don't agree with, I didn't really pay attention to it. I realized how bad it was when I was a child, you know, years ago, but you listen back to it now, you can't excuse it. There's a lot of, a lot of really bad homophobia and stuff in that, in his lyrics. Uh, and you can't excuse him. You can't pardon him now just because he's dead. And, but I think knowing the time where he comes from, the culture of what he comes from and, being institutionalized in prisons and then also being in the rap music game where if we're honest, a lot of our favorite rappers were guilty of a lot of the same things here. Um, I think DMX's stuff was a bit more pronounced. Uh, 
I still have to take in why he was like that and known and studying the rest of his music that there wasn't really hate in his heart for anybody or anything. I think everybody loved DMX. Um, so, I mean, it, that is what that is, but, and, you know, I don't celebrate that about his music, but I celebrate a lot about him. And I'm sad he's gone. And the day he died, I put a pair of Timberlands on. And <laughs> I got a, my, my jacket that kind of looks like an Avrex and I poured a lot of Hennessy and I blasted out who we be and how's it going down and get at me dog and it's on and all these classics out my window. I said my neighbors were pissed off, but fuck them. Uh, I gave one last salute to DMX. You meant so much to us. And if you're listening to this, I want you to go back and this is probably one of my favorite DMX songs. It's an album called, it's called Blackout. Um, it's got Jay-Z on it. It's got Sheik Luch and Jada Kiss from the Locks and DMX. And it's possibly the hardest rapping that has ever happened on any rap record ever. And it samples the GoldenEye theme tune from James Bond. <laughs> so check that out. But, uh, yeah, rest in peace to DMX. He meant a lot to a, a lot of us of a, of a certain vintage. And, uh, you know, he was nearly the closest thing we had to Tupac in that kind of profit, just cultural icon growing up. And you will never get another DMX. The, the way the world works, you can't make another DMX. There'll never be another person like him who'll reach the heights he's done or makes the impact he does. He did everything with no social media. You just knew DMX from his records. When he sold out arenas and, you know, festivals, like lineups and like the shows that he did, he did that all off the back of his music. Maybe one or two interviews in the source of XXL, but he did that off his music worldwide, internationally. The day DMX died, the world knew it and the world grieved. No one gave a shit about Philip after fucking one o'clock. The BBC Italia, the search results were at DMX. And that's what he meant. He was the people's champ, the grand champ. Darkman X, DMX. Rest in peace. See you later, lads. Hope we didn't waffle too much. Thanks once again to Mango, speaking from the heart. Delighted to have you on the show. Thanks so much for your words. And if you're looking for something completely different, the Heads of Podcast Network has lots of great shows, lots of new shows. This is one of them. Tired of tuning into negative news? Well, get your week off to the right start with the Happy Broadcast. Let's help you focus on the positive things happening in our world. Each episode will feature positive news, some mental health tips, and we'll hear from our Happy Broadcast community about what makes them happy. The podcast is hosted by me, Amy O'Dwyer, in collaboration with Mauro Gatti and his popular social channel, The Happy Broadcast. Episodes are out every Monday and you can listen and subscribe wherever you get your favourite podcasts. Let's help spread some positivity. All right, time to get the show back on the road. It is time for our album review. It's Brockhampton. The album is called Roadrunner, New Light, New Machine. And this track featuring Danny Brown is called Buzzcut. Say shit to get these motherfuckers. Yeah. 
So that's Brockhampton. Craig Fitzpatrick, who the hell are Brockhampton? Um, they're a hip-hop boy band that are dropping the boy band bit. Um, so, you know, things are getting serious. They're a Texas collective. Um, as I always say, they were formed through a, a Kanye West forum. I've also been known to frequent, or predecessor of that one. I didn't pa- pass the audition um, <laughs> 10 years ago or so, but the likes of Kevin Abstract, um, who's the de facto leader, uh, Joba, my champion, Merlin Wood, um, did. They're all on the mic. And they've got various producers, designers, artists, um the boy band thing was kind of a label that they liked subverting, I guess, and it kind of spoke to their diversity. Like there's, you know, black, white, um, gay, straight, African, Irish, Latin American members there. Um, it was a real kind of DIY ethos, quite punk. Um, and I guess the boy band thing was probably like the last taboo. And I hinted at the kind of the odd future but mainstream ambitions of the group. So the first mixtape was All American Trash that landed 2016 and their debut proper was like a year later and then there was just like an avalanche of releases. Uh, Most notably the Saturation series. I think um, Saturation 3 is probably their finest, um, their weirdest up until now. And then Brockhampton World, that's probably like the best thing it can be um, because they're known to kind of shirk traditional structures. There's a brassness and a kind of a novelty to what they do. Quick switch-ups, plenty of opportunities for star turns and memes. Um, The talk around this one Roadrunner, New Light, New Machine, which is their sixth, is that they're getting kind of super personal. Uh, They're opening up about loss, sexuality, uh, with a new kind of maturity, I think you might say. And it might be one of two this year. Uh, So keeping up that work ethic. There's been a few releases in the last year or so uh, under the kind of technical difficulties banner uh, that signposted the way. And uh, Buzzcut, as we just heard, which was uh, made its debut on No Oxcord. It's a bit of chaotic fun with uh, Danny Brown uh, overseeing things. It got us suitably hyped then. How do you feel about the final product now, Dave? Should clarify that when you say it made its debut on No Oxcord, which of course is our monthly <laughs> <World> premiere, <laughs> it's our monthly <laughs> listening recommends corner, which you can get on Patreon.com/slash No Encore. Of course, uh, it wasn't a, a world premiere. It'd be great if it was, though. Wouldn't that be cool? But no, um, if they're listening. But Craig did wax lyrical. Craig did wax lyrical. Did have a lot of high praise for the track there on a recent episode of No Oxcord, and it was fittingly energetic. Uh, it's a hell of a way to start this record. It's strange. Brockhampton have been an act for me that have retained or maintained or developed a, a major level of intrigue, largely due to personality and largely due to kind of what they're about and who they are and the collective and all that kind of stuff. I don't know if they've ever done it for me over the course of a full record. Um, this is probably the closest that they've come, I think. It's really good. Um, I'm particularly drawn to... Just, I mean, I I expected that it would be scattershot and it would be a bit kind of fucked up and a bit all over the place, and it absolutely is. It is hard to pull it together. I've listened to it a lot over the course of the week, and it is like, you know, about 45 minutes long, you know, there's a good amount of tracks on here. But I've hit repeat quite often throughout the week with, you know, no real kind of chore feeling about it, you know. It's just more like I want to go back into it. I find it very hard to decipher. I find it very, very, very hard to unpack and only like when I really kind of tuned in some of the lyrics in particular on tracks like The Light and The Light Part 2, mm-hmm. in which the vocalist Joba addresses his father's suicide in extremely blunt terms and very, you know, tough, I, 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 would, I would imagine, in terms of the emotions he's kind of pouring out there. But it's done very, very well. Like, I mean, like there is a heavy weight to this. Um, the tracks themselves are constantly moving. I wonder if a, 
if a unit like this would be overproduced and you hear it there on Buzzkill, like there's so much going on, you're not even sure where it's turned. And then here's Danny Brown to just take it all over. Uh, he's a very good union with them, but that's he's literally in there at the start, then he's gone. So I think that they're a very interesting act. I don't know how memorable these tracks are, is the thing. They're clearly like there's lots of good stuff on here. Charlie Wilson pops up as well. Lots of samples, you know, kind of very, very familiar stuff for hip hop fans as well coming on. And it's it's like a Jackson Pollock painting, right? I mean, this is just throwing everything, throwing all your fucking colours, all your styles, all your influences, and all your emotions for sure at it. I don't know if it, if it actually coalesces into a narrative point, but maybe that's not what they are, right? Maybe they're just, this is what they are. They're just like a bolt of energy and that works. Sure. I, I think it's funny because I think it's probably their most coherent record, but I still agree with you, which says a lot about, you know, previous releases. I think there's narratives here, but it's in like little chapters and it can kind of jump back and forth and there's different stories kind of interlocking for sure. I do think actually, you know, Saturation Tree and the whole trilogy is no longer the high water mark for these guys. Uh, I think you can condense the recommendation for a first timer down to this. I take your point that like there's no obvious kind of hits um, for sure, but I think as a piece it really, really works. Um, and it kind of reinforces their mainstream credentials, I guess, which was it seemed to be important to them in the run-up. It's not really one for the hardcore. They're back kind of on the radar. I've seen people say that Sugar, uh, a track they dropped a while ago, which was like their one kind of almost hit, and I even had like, you know, Julie on the remix and a TikTok dance and they did it on Ellen and you know stuff I hate but except for Julie a bit but good for them I suppose but people were saying that might be something of a bellwether for this and you know it's kind of the sweetness the focus the hooks and actually I think it turned out that this is it's by no means kind of pop I think it's because of the pandemic as well they've talked about how they were aiming for a pop record and then when they had so much time in their hands um, they ended up making three different records to get to this one and Kevin Abstract has said in um, that same interview where he kind of said we're not a boy band anymore he also said I don't want to hit uh, he said I want to make things uh, connect on an emotional level and make people feel better about their day or that make them cry in the room alone so he wants impact I guess in many different ways so I think Roadrunner has that kind of in spades because it is all over the place um, so the goalpost kind of shifted a lot of it's based on um an emotional response, I guess, to the darkness around him. And as you mentioned there, unexpectedly, Joba being at the real kind of emotional heart of it, uh, particularly on the light and the light part two, just dealing with um, such a kind of tough upbringing and uh, the loss of his father. And he really lays it all out there. It's it's quite, particularly part two is quite a tough listen. But um, yeah, part one is beautifully understated. It's got this kind of mournful psychedelia to it. And it's just... It works. It's it's a really hard thing to pull off, but it works really well. I think it frames the record um, while the picture kind of within it switches about. There's not a definite mood. I think other records have been like very much of a mood while still being all over the place sonically. But this is just like let each member of the crew have their moment. Let them tell their story. Um, so there's something for everyone in that in, like in that regard. They don't seem to be jostling for position either right like it can be a bit chaotic but you never feel like they're stepping on each other's toes or you know someone has overt influence on the tracks they feel like this is now home base as a collective not a boy band they're comfortable and they figured out how to make this thing work right 
Yeah, I, I mean, like, that comes across. It came across in the Guardian interview as well, which I read, because the guy was, like, saying how he was on a Zoom call waiting for, like, the eighth member to show up. And I was like, Jesus, like, best of luck transcribing that one, pal. But, like, there's <laughs> there's 13 members of the, like, of the collective, I think, in general. Um, but the thing that did come across throughout that interview, whether it was, you know, just, like, even in kind of glimpses or in general, was that they are very, very clearly a family. They're very, very clearly very, very together on everything that they do. And yeah, you're right. I mean, like, it, it's funny because, I mean, like, there's a part where one of them says that, you know, he wants to write a hit. He wants to write a song that, like, you get into an Uber and it'll be on or you're in a club and it comes on and everyone goes crazy and it's very easily radio identifiable. But Kevin Abstract was like, I don't want to write hits. I hate them. It's not what I'm yeah, doing yeah. this for at all. Like, I, I, I want, you know, deep songs. I want, like, you know, confessionals and, you know, really kind of, like, you know, slow burns or whatever, which... That would suggest that this should be a mess. And I guess, you know, as a as a general kind of concept, they are kind of a mess, but it does flow very well from A to B. What do you think their their standing is in modern music, let, let alone the genre that they're in? It's interesting. They, they, they were seen as like the younger generation for such a long time and, you know, quite unlike an odd future that has such kind of artistic credibility and they've like struck their own path in so many different ways it felt like Brockhampton were ever so slightly try hard um I think this could be the record that changes things in that regard um because previously I've never got the feeling from them that like when you're listening to one of their tracks you're just thinking no one else could do this but they're getting close on this one for sure um so yeah I think this could change the way they're perceived a little bit. Like I did, in the way it's structured, I, I, I kind of heard bits of, you know, Kendrick's kind of laser focus, but also his widescreen cinematic ambition. I think they're tapping into some of that. And just how fluid all the different styles are, there's something of Andre 3000 there. Um, I think they're getting there. I think they're figuring it out. Um, but yeah, whether, whether it totally changes the narrative is, you know, we will see. Yeah, it's interesting because, I mean, I think one of my biggest bugbears, and I think it's something that Spotify does as a default now, is when I'm listening to an album, a new album in particular, and I'm four or five tracks in and I realise it's on shuffle, I, I, I get like a proper despair black cloud of like, oh, I'm trying to, I'm trying to figure this out and hear it as it's supposed to be. But I think this album actually is one that you probably could put on shuffle, and I don't mean that as a dig. I just think that it is a pinball machine. Um, I like it. It's good. It's a 7 out of 10. But there's still very much a question mark to me. Okay. Yeah, there's, you know, some things that you need to surmount, I guess, to really fall for this group. And I don't know if they've answered it completely. Like, there are moments where it's funny, you know, the top five we're doing where I thought, they just sound like a boy band. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? They're kind of unashamed about wearing the pop influences. Like, they they, they are that generation of just being like, they've grown up... Um, listening to chart stuff and they're now using what was once kind of disposable and maybe careerist but like true mass connection and like their nostalgia it's part of their emotional fabric um but i think it can read to some people as just like a bit kind of obnoxious a bit cheesy at times sometimes it's a little bit earnest and clunky uh like you know frank ocean is sade these guys are kind of boys to men maybe at their best maybe backstreet boys and they stray into kind of emo territory like they're not going to be for everyone um but it's a lot of potential there i think this is great i think this is an eight out of ten for me um 
it's kind of them fully becoming taking up the mantle of like being you know Cuddy's kids uh to a certain extent i think they're carrying that torch and um they've huge fan base of like well you know they have a kind of dedicated fan base of really loyal listeners um i'm sure once this hits the road it's going to really take off uh if and when that happens they've been talking i think kevin abstract was like yep this is our last record or like the next record is we're done after this year basically but i feel like they say that all the time i think that's part of the patter but it would be a nice way to go out and a real shame i guess kids these days but are kids these days listening to boy bands do we even have boy bands anymore especially if brockhampton are rejecting the tag craig do you think the ramones are a boy band before we get going on this top five i have to ask the question because i got some exciting breaking news for you pete davidson has been cast as joey ramone in a new netflix film which i'm sure will upset nobody at all pete davidson wow joey ramone is such a distinctive dude that you're always going to get that casting wrong i think Unless you could, like, de-age Howard Stern. Um, the Ramones as a boy band. Do you know what? I was really trying to, like, avoid controversy on this one because it becomes a slippery slope, as we might see. Um, I'm going to say no. <laughs> okay. Her punk group, yeah. Yeah, you can get into genres, you can get into categorizations. It's tough. It is, of course, our top five best and worst boy band songs. Craig is on best, I'm on worst, and I'll kick <laughs> I mean, it off, I yeah. guess. Well, I mean, like, do we need parameters? Yeah. Like, did you have any parameters? Like, I, I, I was Yeah, just... I, I want to say, like, my... I, I feel <laughs> I like mine say... was a t- <laughs> I just want to say, all right, I put a lot of parameters If I can be serious myself, for a moment. I then regretted. It was a tough ask. I think girl groups would have been easier in terms of best. I'm, not, I'm sure you had great fun with worst, as we're about to hear. As always. Um, but yeah, I just kind of ended up going, you know, head down, enjoying me pop music. Um, I, I didn't want to have a classic Craig move of being like, well, actually, the Jackson 5 are like, you know, the Monkees or even the Beatles are really a boy band. So here's like, you know, Waterloo Sunset or something. That's obviously the Kinks, but you know what I mean? Just picking like classic rock songs. So my perimeters are going to be 90s pop, right? Songs from the time are like acts that struck big back then. Um, like kind of children of new edition to an extent. Um, that rose to kind of fame at the height of like the CD era. They're like, they have to try and appeal to like tweens and teens. No instrument focus, right? So there'd be, the Ramones would be struck off maybe for that reason. This is just my best ones. More about the voices, the personalities. That's my territory. And um, that was what made it difficult also finding boy band music that was also quite good okay uh my parameter was is it bad yes is it by a boy band yes in it goes okay so with that in mind uh an act that don't feature on my list are going to be heard in this first clip so just to intro the section set the tone this is not my number five it is instead angus dayton who used to present have a good news for you presenting bbc's before they were famous a long time ago so just have a gander. Let's let's get the atmosphere going here, shall we? Okay. Let us take you back to 1993 and to the highly prestigious Irish talk programme, The Late Late Show. It's Boyzone's TV debut. Girls, if you have tears, be prepared to shed them. And everyone else, if you have rooms, be prepared to leave them. <laughs> These lads have decided to cash in on that particular market, very specifically that market, and they are going to be, or four of them are going to be, Ireland's answer to take that. Okay, well, who is who now? You identify yourself. I'm Ronan Keating. Ronan Keating. Where are you from? I'm from Swords. From Swords. Okay, and who are you? I'm Mark Walton. Mark Walton from? Rohini. Rohini. Keith Duffy. Rohini. Rohini. Shane Lynch. Rohini. Richard Roth. That mine. Stephen Dayton. Seventh place. 
I was told you don't play any instruments at all, none of you. There's a lot of liars <laughs> I was also told that you don't sing at all, none of you. Oh, no. oh, and knowing that you don't play, you don't sing and you can't write music, I thought you'd go very far, but now you've wrecked the whole thing, you see. Is there some realistic talent? Or no, they've, they've no talent whatsoever. <laughs> Nothing. They've no, they've no talent whatsoever. They don't sing, they don't, they don't write music and they don't play instruments. So the, you won't be playing any instruments and you won't be singing. It'll all be backing track on the stage when you actually Well, we, when we go. <laughs> <laughs> you don't sing, do you? No. I do. Oh, you do. Very good. You don't play any instruments or have any songs. No. You do. They don't. They don't. They're lying. They don't. Uh, we're not going to sing. We're going to do a bit of dance. Oh, they're you, going to right? do a dance for us. Oh, I see. You're going to do a bit of dance. You kind of get the feeling the host isn't entirely on their side, don't you? <laughs> What should happen now, of course, is that the boys then put on a dazzling display of pop excellence so impressive it wipes the smirk right off his face. In true Hollywood style, that's just what would happen. Sadly, this show was made in Dublin. This show was also made in Dublin, at least two-thirds of it anyway. And yeah, so that was a, a chaotic performance. I'm sure many, many people listening to the show are familiar with the infamous original Boys Own lineup, which I believe had six of them in it, in which they danced to weird club music. Oh, how they danced. Oh, how they danced. And it's a clip that comes up all the time on Irish TV. It was very embarrassing for everybody. I actually asked Ronan Keating about it in my last Joe interview there about a year and a half ago. And to his credit, he laughed it off. You know, he time has healed those wounds. What he, else are you going to do? And he, yeah, I suppose. <laughs> storm out of the interview. And he said uh, he credited he credited that moment uh, as, as Boyzone being the original meme, which I don't think is true, but it was a nice line. Mm. And he was a nice fella, you know? Fair enough. Right, so, Boys Own, not on my list. Maybe they're on Craig's. I don't know. But I am on the worst. So, let's go back to 2006 for an act that I presume no one except me has ever heard of. So, at number five for me in the worst boy band songs of all time, it's the only release by an act by the name of Upper Street. The song is called The One. And oh, this sorry, Upper Street? Upper Street, yeah. As opposed to like Lower Street. Yes, correct. I know. It's, and do you know what's really annoying about this, Craig, right? First of all, yeah. I should say, when I, went on, when, I, when I went on to YouTube, you know the way like it's just a garble of words and numbers and so on in the URL? I swear to God, yeah. this one closed off with a word and the word was Hell. So even the algorithm isn't that impressed with these lads. But who are these lads? Well, Craig, if I told you that this was in fact a boy band supergroup featuring Dane Bearers of Another Level, Jimmy Constable of 911, Bradley McIntosh of S Club 7, and Danny Wood of New Kids on the Block, and originally had Lee Lashford Evans of Steps also in the group, but he was kicked out, would you be like, you're, you're making this up, Dave? I'm not. As a matter of fact, this was an act that was formed on an MTV show in the mid-2000s called, and this would be a better name for the band, Totally Boy Band, which ran for one series, and it was so clearly all stage-managed and terrible and scripted, and I watched every single episode back then. This was the mid-2000s, this was MTV, this was England in the World Cup, this was FHM Magazine, this was a different time altogether, my friends. And... Uh, yeah, and now you apologise formally to the audience, oh, the to, world, to literally everybody. Yeah, for sure. I didn't work on the show or anything, but uh, it was very much like let's put these guys together, let's make them into a boy band, 
And even like coming up with a name, I think was an episode. Then of course recording this terrible song. It went absolutely nowhere. A full episode, Upper Street. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why they went with that one. Uh, it should be said that like like this song uh, was released, and I don't think it did very well. It, it entered the charts in the UK at number thirty five on at the end of October in two thousand and six. Yeah. Um, a week later, like one week later, right? Teletext. A page on Teletext called Planet Sound had the exclusive and said the band had split up after confrontation <laughs> with their record company. So it was a publicity stunt that didn't work. Uh, it was like cast offs of different people. And even like on the show, I remember like the lads didn't like your man from Steps and like he gets frozen out and eventually gets like fired. But even that felt like it was scripted. Like, I, mean, like, like, I, I don't believe that it was real. Which begs the question, if I'm correct, and it was in fact fake, why would anyone sign up to be rejected by these guys? I don't know how it would do anything for anyone's career. The Money, song, Money. Well, I don't know how much they were paid, but like, this song, which is called The One, I mean, it's just every, like, tropey boy band song of all time, especially like that kind of like, thing in the middle of it, like that kind of horrible snake-like, I don't yeah. even know what it is, like some kind of synth thing. Um, Very of its time, completely hollow not even good like very bad singers like like these guys aren't strong enough to be leads dane bearers i suppose i don't know maybe he floats some people's boat but not mine so yeah absolutely awful and glad you confirmed that i will say <laughs> yeah i will say i don't leave any any ambiguity but my <laughs> feelings on dane bearers as a as a performer um this was prime and a human being. Um, this was Prime coming in from the club at half three in the morning, trashed and throwing on MTV. And oh, class, two episodes of Totally Boybander on. This show is absolute garbage. Right, right. I love it. And that's all I can say positive about this whole experience. Should it, like Upper Street. I mean, like, really? That's your name? Really? Yeah, like it just, it's so phoned in, just every aspect of it. It really is. It does sound like... It could be just an AI track that's trying to simulate a boy band, right? It, it, it totally has that uncanny valley thing, but with real human beings. Um, so, yeah, not the best start. So, well done, I guess, Dave. Thank, Thank you, you very for bringing much. this to our attention. In terms of the best, um, I'm going to dip into some Craig nostalgia. Um, this might have been off the first tape I ever owned, I believe. Um, this was like the pop equivalent of Blur versus Oasis. So you had Take That versus these guys. But Craig, there must be some mistake. You're on best. (laughs) (laughs) I knew you were going to say that. They have to be in there. It's E17. It's all right. (laughs) It's a good song, dude. I like this. It's um, it's high energy stuff. And obviously, like, Stay Another Day would have been maybe the more obvious choice. Um, You know, now just forever a Christmas song. Um, And really well put together. But yeah, maybe it's just nostalgia. But this... As opposed to what we just heard, like, this is kind of very human and messily so, I guess. So E17 were um, 
a London uh, boy band formed when Tony Mortimer, who was uh, the songwriter, essentially, he had a bunch of uh, tracks that were kind of good to go. He was promised a record deal um, after he kind of presented it to London Records and they were like, okay, if you form a boy band, um, because that's all the rage at the moment, um, fair enough, you're up and running. So he, he pretty much did. He was the brains behind the whole operation. He's a really interesting songwriter, I think. I mean, obviously, there is very much the hallmarks of like the boy band cheesiness the kind of weird synth sounds and the kind of just dated production is all there but it kind of works for me it's such a throwback thing they were pretty massive at the time as well they were the bad boys to you know the clean cut uh take that and they fell apart pretty quickly after brian harvey um admitted to taking like a bunch of ecstasy in in an interview and they were forced to kind of break up because you know there was six-year-olds like me listening to them on tape that um, was a very like the 90s and the british tabloids all like that that really was it, it was a career killer that kind of stuff now it'd be like oh, who, who really cares but it was extremely criminal you know it was like very yeah like noel gallagher just about got away with it when he's like oh taking drugs is just like having a cup of tea and people are like what let's camp outside your house for a week um <laughs> so yeah just absolutely crazy that the bands just fell apart like by i think by 1998 um Tony had left along with all of his songs and they released their like fourth album at this stage like whatever three or four years in called Resurrection and they didn't have any better songwriters I always love when boy bands or pop acts do this and get so dramatic with it it's great like there's something about this that I think is uh, there's a lot of their songs that I think work I think he's kind of underrated because they were they became a bit of a joke Um, but there's aspects of like you can hear the kind of second summer of love in there, Acid House, like Manchester stuff. And I think Brian Harvey as well. Like, obviously, he, vocally, he's not totally on point. Um, but I think that plugs into like a lineage of like the Human League, maybe Phil, Phil Oakey or even Soft Cell, like that thing of like people that maybe shouldn't be pop stars, but somehow they're all the more brilliant for it. Um, and just kind of quite well-written stuff. Like, I think he's got a few, I think Tony Mortimer's got a few Ivor novellas in his back pocket. So, I rest my case, Dave. That's fair. I think he was all, I think Tony Mortimer was recently the subject of, like, a Guardian article in the last year or so. Oh, yeah. We talked about it on the show where he's, um, at the age of 50, I believe, got heavily into reading, finally. Yeah. He picked up a book, he started with Harry Potter, and it was a really heartwarming thing of just, like, the change it made to his life and how it made lockdown bearable. And, uh, yeah, wish him all, uh, you know... All the good in the world, I suppose. It's a great story. Uh, the song, I suppose, could possibly grow on me, but, uh, you know... Oh, you it's a jam, dude. <laughs> seriously, seriously, post-vaccination, we're hitting the club. This comes on, you're racing to the floor. I, probably, yeah, in fairness. All right, so number four, nice. uh, a song that would have me racing away from the floor, back on the worst boy band list here. Um, I tried to stay away from covers. I wasn't successful. Here's a cover. So, uh, do you know who that is, Craig, or who the cover is by, by any chance? 
Uh, no. <laughs> Westlife Junior? No, I don't know. <laughs> uh, it's One True Voice, and the oh. single is from a double A side, and the song is Sacred Trust, which is actually a Bee Gees song from a 2001 album, so I don't think we're dealing with a classic here necessarily, but I guess you can hear that Bee Gees swagger and twang. Swagger and twang. It's my, my new crime-fighting duo from the East End. So, uh, One True Voice were put together on pop stars The Rivals. They were put, like, a, a boy group put together to go against a girl group. The girl group were Girls Aloud. They were very good. They had a career. One True Voice yeah. did not. Uh, this was the song that went up against Sound of the Underground. Girls Aloud won the chart battle and won the war because One True Voice uh, only released one more single after this called Shakespeare's Way With Words, which is a great song title. I didn't even listen to That's the song. That's incredible. It's good, isn't it? Yeah, I'm sure the song wasn't great. Uh, then they split in August of 2003, acrimoniously, apparently, having never released an album. Um, there's just, there's been such a glut. This kind of kicked off a wave, right? Because this is, you know, you had Pop Idol, then you had Pop Stars, The Rivals, and then X Factor comes along and it just becomes... The ultimate visible conveyor belt on a Saturday night on ITV for about 10, 15 years. It's probably still going. Yeah. And I mean, all it does for the most part, I mean, you do get a Girls Aloud, you know, you get a little mix, a One Direction, you know, every now and then you might get someone of vague value. But generally, you know, it's just this really like hollow and just of its time commercial soulless stuff, you know, like, like it's very, very difficult, I think to kind of come out of the traps and have anything of value to say. I mean, you could make the same claims of Girls Aloud, like I mean, but I think the songs were just better and they were better at performing them. Whereas this is just five generic lads with a generic song. Yeah. Means nothing. This is like, this lends kind of weight to my case that like it was very tough finding kind of great stuff because you can pick a lot of girl groups that have just at least one or two moments of pop genius, but there's something about the boy band format that seems to kind of foster just like really insipid music, which this is like a textbook example of. Yeah, there's just nothing to it. I mean, like even the name One True Voice, you know, you're just like, like what? Like I'd I'd love to see the meeting. I'd love to see the whiteboard, all the different names on it. Again, Upper Street, you know, could could have been there three years earlier, but... Like at one stage, I went look and I did some 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 deep diving to see what all these guys got up to after the fact, you know, and like not that much. Like like some of them still sing in pubs, and some of them like ended up on like uh, Doctor Who, and it's just like there's just nothing like there's, <laughs> oh, okay. like it's just real like really really middling, and it, it's kind of depressing in a way because you're like that's your legacy. Like I was in this nothing act that nobody remembers. We lost to Girls Aloud, who were great, and here's our shit Bee Gees song. Even the video, it's just so, so, so stock. All of this is stock. Miserable. Misery, misery, misery. That's what I have to say about it. All right. I've got the opposite of misery, the opposite of stock, the opposite of insipid. Let it roll.
Motown Philly, boys to men. Does that do it for you, Dave? Yes, I could have listened to that. Could have kept it going. I was like, yeah, this is this is the stuff. Boys to men, of course. Um, you know, known for their slow jams, uh, for some smooth, smooth tunes. Uh, I wanted to go with Motown Philly, which was one of their first big hits, just because I think it like really acted as a blueprint for a lot of the. The harder bops, I guess, in the genre and that kind of style of like self-referential um, boy band song where they're like hoovering up a bit of kind of novelty, but also there's a hip hop edge there. Um, like I think Backstreet Boys took this format and tried to run with it. Uh, NSYNC did too. And this also brings in another crucial element of 90s boy bandery, um, breakdancing. There has to be opportunities for breakdancing. Howard Donald will tell you the same. Um, maybe don't ask Westlife but by and large the best boy bands will indulge in a bit of breakdancing and this is like the perfect tune for it Boys to Men I guess at the time they weren't massive over this side of the Atlantic right like I think they were more of an American concern obviously now you know people know the hits and there's a big fan base for them but they're seen as the most successful boy band of all time huge amount of Grammys huge amount of uh, Billboard hits and just like I don't know, actual substance in their songs. Do you know what I mean? They sounded like they were enjoying it. There was like creativity there and they were all very talented. All four members were like singing as leads. Like there wasn't just a case of like one or two uh, lead singers up front and then these kind of background guys shuffling about. Uh, I just, you can hear it there in that song where they're just trading bars so well. Like it sounds like hip hop. It sounds like a kind of posse cut. It's so, it's so kind of on point and just infectious and... This wasn't a big song for me at the time as a little kid, but like when I put it on during the week, I was like, I had this instant burst of like faux nostalgia for it. I was like, yes, this is tremendous. Still smacks. Uh, really, really good. Love it. I was very sad last week when you did your top five talking bits in songs and the incredible heartbroken monologue from the midpoint of Boys to Men's peerless end of the road wasn't present. So I'm glad to see you writing that wrong this week by getting the giving the boys the credit that they deserve, you know? So, from my point of view, Craig, you know, over here in the worst corner, it's tough. It's tough at the top, you know. I think that's the case of many a person, whether you're a podcast host or if you're a, you know, a global spanning musician. And as a matter of fact, two years ago, when I spoke to Danny O'Donoghue from the script, he did in fact tell me that he's still trying to write the song that will save the world. But Danny, you wrote it back in 1999. Here's my number three. So, yeah, gonna get down with the My Town Boys. It's My Town. Which uh, with a party all night a song from summertime from hum- summertime for humanity 1999. Danny O'Donoghue <laughs> of the script was in this band alongside Mark Sheehan. The two of them would later go on to form the script and have considerably more success. Um, this is basically like red flag the song. I mean, in terms of its lyrics and certainly its video, in which the lads it's all very Americanized as well. Like the lads are like you know very of its time, like frosted tips. You know, like that kind of yes. Uh, the kind of music video where like the lights are so bright everyone's just like platinum um very kind of sugar ray-esque as well the kind of like jangly guitar in this one that daniel dunn who is strumming along at one point with a backwards cap 
and they're all milling around like a high school and like chasing after like schoolgirls in uniforms and shit and it's just very like this did not age well um they were kind of like they're a weird act i mean like there is some louis walsh dna in here <laughs> horrific oh, Jesus. <laughs> in as much as uh he scourge yeah, on our nation <laughs> <laughs> a blight worse than the famine itself uh, yeah. he he was involved with the setting up of the band because of course he fucking was and they were like signed to Universal and they were kind of marketed internationally more than say Ireland and I remember seeing this video and seeing this act pop up on top 30 hits back in the day and everything about it screams American music video they felt American it sounds American much like when the script showed up in 2008 and I heard The Man Who Can't Be Moved and I was certain that that was an American band um, Yeah, they had a weird one I mean like they were like there was all kinds of like they were signed to like a subsidiary of Universal that eventually folded. The album never actually came out in some places, including I think Ireland, which I find to be bizarre. Uh, it was a self-titled album called My Town in two thousand. A bunch of singles. This was like the second one. It went to twenty-two in the UK, and like I say, it's just it's pure insipid. It's pure trend chasing. It's so like of its time, like turn of the century, ten a penny, Backstreet Boys. NSYNC style stuff and just really like gl- overly glossy songs about lads chasing girls you know it's just really really insulting I think there's just no heart to yeah. it whatsoever like you know you played like a bit of boys to men there and like whatever bit whatever you could tell they like put a bit of fucking emotion into it this is just like get some pretty boys have the run after some girls in the video profit you know it's just like fuck that and also i should say like on the wikipedia page for this act there's like a big background and it's unusually detailed so i'm reading through it right i'm not gonna read the whole thing because it's genuinely very boring but there's a part where it says their lawyer the most influential lawyer in music ken hertz and i'm like well we know who wrote that wikipedia page don't we (laughs) ken at it again (laughs) yeah it's the moment when like insipid goes insidious for sure and then even the name alone, like they're they're very much in that stable of acts where I'm just like, this must be some kind of tax write off. No one is like fully committed to this as being a viable thing. Do you know what I mean? It's one <laughs> it word as well, like, like my town. One word, and like of again, it is. that time when I interviewed Daniel Donahue, do check out that interview if you, if you never have. It's still live on Joe. They didn't take it down after I left. Um, I only had twenty minutes, <laughs> like so I didn't bring it up. But like, I'd love to know what he thinks. I bet he, I bet he's proud. I'm sure he thinks it was like a proper I good feel first like, yeah, step. You like, know. I remember talking to him before and Mark as well and I think it just get they they kind of very much tie it into that whole like you know um school of hard knocks and just you know earning their stripes and you know good honest Dublin lads I think they've kind of seamlessly fitted into their narrative which is like good for them I suppose <laughs> they certainly had a career after it all right my number three and um talking about a lot of kind of cribbing of boys to men and stuff like this this is an act that might have been guilty of that in the 90s but they matured and then they started cribbing from I don't know the Stranger Things soundtrack Yeah, now we're talking, don't go breaking my heart, Backstreet Boys, the kings of American boy bandery. 
<laughs> the absolute <laughs> lads from Orlando, Florida. <laughs> and this came out in 2018. Um, it's taken from their DNA album, which we reviewed on the show in 2019. And um, yeah, it's very much kind of woven into the fabric of this show. Uh, you say that, rec- Craig, but like, <laughs> yeah. I, I, if I may, I, I think there's been there's been several oversights in the history of this show maybe the biggest oversight in the history of this show is that in 2018 we were just asleep at the switch like this should have been song of the year and it didn't make it into any of our lists we just weren't really paying attention to it and then eventually i don't i can't remember what led to it but like when it came to our attention we were like this is the best song of all time (laughs) i was looking through a whatsapp group right to see because i was remembering the moment where it was like the friday after we decided to review the Backstreet Boys album and we'd kind of gone our separate ways and like, I think Dohi put into the chat something like, Backstreet Boys, that that, that album, the you know that track? And we were all like, fucking yeah, <laughs> absolute banger. I couldn't find that, but I did find a 2018 message, Dave, from you. Oh, wow. Where you were wondering if Cullum would talk about this very song on Songs of the Week, and he didn't respond, so you were not asleep at the wheel oh, or the switch. I don't remember that um, at all. You picked up on it and just yeah, I think we glossed over. But I, or I do remember. I think speaking, some of us were off that week. Yeah, yeah. speaking to Cullum though, like when we went when we went over to Norway for his wedding uh, in 2019, <laughs> this was like our anthem, right? We, like we were constantly oh playing gosh. it in the house that we rented, and we're just like it was it, it was me, you, and Joseph and Josh, and it was like. This is this is us. So this is our good. song. What a song! It's Middle so good, so yeah, good. Um, a dude called Stuart Crichton um, was one of the songwriters on it, and he's like worked with Kylie, Pet Shop Boys, Sugar Babes. I've got. I think he had like a hand in um, that kind of alchemy of the song, and it's just. Yeah, it's the song they were kind of meant to sing at this stage in their career. <laughs> and obviously, you know, like Backstreet Boys are the classic kind of boy band archetype, right? Like they're just, they've got the dodgy manager, Lou Pearlman. I remember reading a, a pretty good expose of him actually in Q magazine years back and just like the stuff that guy got up to. But anyway, um, like they, they were... I think they actually kind of, the guys in the band really believe in the kind of music and they, you know, they're passionate vocalists. They wanted to put a group together themselves. Like it was one of those kind of organic stories, but then they kind of got an audition altogether. Um, There was a bit of kind of serendipity there. Um, They were auditioned in like, they were auditioned in Lou Pearlman's Blimp Hanger. (laughs) <laughs> which is fantastic where i presume they later shot a video because like <laughs> no, right. yeah. surely such a super villain and uh their first performance was at sea world <laughs> which is just great and like within a year they were in sweden doing songs with like a young max martin and um so many classics i should point out that um a st- another stipulation i put on myself was that it would just be one track per artist because you know backstreet boys have so many jams another group we may talk about also could have featured in all five slots but um um, yeah, you know, kind of figures of fun, I suppose, at one point, but hugely influential. I'm not sure if that was a good thing, but yeah, they've got all the markers, you know, the, the frosted tips, the kind of vo- voice box weirdness, the weird kind of tinsley synth dressing, very 90s. Um, but this was just like a total renaissance. Incredible. It's a magnificent song and it does suit the stage of their career because it's about, you know, like going around the world and missing your loved ones and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, yeah, they have life under the collar. You know, I believe what they're saying and it is a really, really well-constructed smart pop song with an 
an irresistible, ridiculously strong kick in chorus. It's it's fantastic. I never get tired of it. And it's funny because like, you know, Craig and I don't talk in advance about what we're going to have in our top fives. We're always coming in blind. But like when we decided on doing this one last Saturday morning, I guess, yeah. I said to you, like, I was like, all right, you're on best. And I was like, you know, it's a few locks. I, I think I just said straight away. I was like, so I'll let you have Backstreet Boys. Don't go breaking my heart. <laughs> Thought it might be your number one. Would have been genuinely upset if it wasn't here. But you know, always happy to hear it. It's it's gorgeous. It's an amazing song. Takes I love bronze. it. Bronze. They played three arena on that tour. We should have gone. Fucking hell! Why didn't we go? Next time. Next time. Next time. We'll see all the gigs. Okay, so um, from one of the best pop songs of all time to one of the worst songs I have ever heard in my life at number two. It should have been my number It should have been my number one, but I thought it was just too fucking weird and depressing. Oh my so, god, you had me a shaft of light, but then Cat Amongst the Pigeons, fucking hell. <laughs> it's Cat Among the Pigeons by Bross, <laughs> right? So, and also, yeah, it's you know really annoying. You've already highlighted it. He says Cat Amongst the Pigeons. It's called Cat Among the Pigeons. <laughs> Lads, come on. So it's Bross, you Artistic know. Artistic license. The amazing Bross. When will I be famous? Matt Goss, Luke Goss, two legends. Uh, we've done a popcorn episode on it. We've talked about it on the show. Listener, if you've never seen the documentary Bross after the screaming stops, you have to track it down. I think it's on Volta. It's like three euro or something to rent. It's Metallica, some kind of monster levels of like Spinal Tap and real life documentary. Adam is crying, by the way, with tears of laughter. We all oh, had a bit of a breakdown there. I assume Adam's going to include the laughter audio over the track because it's just, I mean, genuinely, what is this song? What is this song? I don't know what this song is. I don't know who it's for. It's completely fucking bizarre. Um, it, it was the sixth single. It was a double A side. Adam is still laughing. Uh, it was the sixth single double A side released off their debut album Push, right? But it's like, so you're talking like, like, like we're like, let's scrape the bottom of the barrel. Like, you know, we're all out of releases. Let's put Cat Among the Pigeons out there. Went to number two in the UK somehow. Um, there's, an, I've no idea what the song is supposed to be. Like, I really, really genuinely don't. Um, apparently it's about a friend who had struggled to cope with the death of their father and as a result had embarked oh, on tempestuous and doomed relationships. But like the video for this, right, is bizarre. There's a video very, very um, like somber and like kitchen sinky. And it's a it shows one of the lads in a house there's implications of like domestic violence happening and it's about him like trying to defend his mother and get out of the gaff and get away. So like really serious, like harrowing stuff. But of course, YouTube comments, as we know, are the most insane corner of the entire internet. So you go on there for this horrific song. And like one of the top comments I saw was someone who said, good old days, no mobile phones or PlayStations, etc. People more connected to people rather than their gadgets. <laughs> like what <laughs> how is that a thing i don't understand the, the connotation personal organizers but there's not a lot of lore out this one for, for this one but 
Oh, no lore needed. Page one of your Google search does lead to a post from October 2018 on the Mumsnet forum entitled, Bross, Cat Among the Pigeons, Worst Song Ever? Uh, it might be. Um, it's just baffling. It's The one time we agree with Glenner. <laughs> it's just baffling, isn't it? Like, I mean, Jesus Christ. Oh, yeah. I, you know, this is the limits of boy bandery, to be honest, because those lyrics, funny though they are, I can imagine, like, you know, with the right dressing and, like, the kind of a dour um, sonic kind of soundscape, Tom York could deliver them really well and you'd just be like, oh, Cattle <laughs> the Pigeons, do you know what I mean? It could be really austere and harrowing and, like, but when it's, like, this melodramatic, like, fluff, it's the funniest thing I've ever heard. Nick Cave, Cat Among the Pigeons. All right, off you go. <laughs> Okay, um, nonsensical or kind of um, confusing titles can actually work. Here's the proof. Wow, <laughs> think about the girl all the time. Wow, wow. East side to the west side. Pushing fat rides, it's no surprise. She got tricks in the stash. Stacking up the cash fast when it comes to the gas. By no means average. It's on when she's got to have it. Baby, you're a perfect 10. I want to get in. Can I get down so I I like the way you work here. Black Street there with no diggity. Um, this is like the brainchild of Teddy Riley, who quite an influential um, artist himself, producer, um, was kind of on the scene for a while before he decided to go the, the boy band route. There was um, a group called Guy, which I don't know too much about. Uh, they broke up. Then he teamed up with uh, another dude, um, who was in a group called Stone Street and it became Black Street and the rest is history. Um, a boy band that was kind of f- featured, I think, initially in like a Chris Rock movie or something like that. Um, they actually had credibility in terms of hip hop. You've got Dr. Dre on production there, which is just kind of like unheard of. But um, they were going a good bridge between the boy band and the man band, I guess, along with the likes of Boys to Men. Um, and this is just like such an absolute bop, like removed completely from the genre. This is an all timer timer for me. I was going to use that word. I was going to say it's an all timer. This is like one of it's a perfect song, right? Like, I mean, like I can't find fault with it at all. It's endlessly enduring. It's absolutely brilliant. Uh, is, I didn't realize they were a boy band. Are you stretching the thread here a bit? <laughs> It was a tough week, Dave, and you know what? Well, give, me your, give me your definition. What? Bross, oh, come on. pop duo, pop <laughs> duo. No, there, there, there was a third go. member of the band. They technically were a band. Bross were, Bross were a boy band. Like, more, like, come on. This is, Adam, sure. Adam it's, step in here. You know what? Pull us it's apart. A, it's, it's a topic for debate, and there's, what I will say is very influential in terms of other boy bands. A lot of the Twitter discussion from newer fans is like, what? There's a there's a Blackstreet? Is that some somehow related to Backstreet Boys? And then you've got the older heads, uh, particularly in the African-American community, who say at the time, Blackstreet most definitely were a boy band, and they were all about it. They've got a lot of the kind of markers. They were vocals first. They're the mix of pop, R&B sounds, quite smooth production, and they had matching outfits, Dave, and I think that's enough. Okay, fine. Well, Bross had matching faces, so I mean, like, like, what does that say about them? <laughs> Look, we'll agree to disagree. It's an amazing song. It's uh, timeless, perfect, peerless, amazing. Some songs age perfectly, and they just stand the test of time incredibly well. Other songs age like milk and sounded terrible to begin with. 
here's my number one. Like I say, listen, before I hit it, right? Count Among the Pigeons is, is, is technically my number one because there's never going to be a worse song in a top five ever. It's just not going to happen. But I couldn't close my top five with that. I just felt like too too depressing a way to go. So let's get happy. Feels like I should be screaming Trying to get it through to my friends Sometimes it feels that life has no meaning But I know things will be alright in the end When the rainy days are dying Gotta keep on, keep on trying All the bees and birds are flying Never let go, gotta hold on and Not stop till the break of dawn and Keep moving, don't stop rocking Why, yes, it's everyone's favourite street boy band, Five, and the song Keep On Moving. That was a big hit around the turn of the century, I want to say. When, when did this come out? I had it written down. 1999, apparently. What a year. Okay. So, yeah, British boy band, Sean Conlon, Richie Neville, Scott Robinson, Abs Love, and Jason J. Brown. Five young men with attitude. It's funny, because I read a thing... Power to rock you. <laughs> I, I read a thing in NME this week in which they compared them. They said basically they were Kasabian to E17's Oasis. How do you feel about that? Just, <laughs> sure, let's just go. With it. <laughs> it's, just, it's just words, isn't it? Like, I mean, so this keep on moving. It kind of makes sense, though. Yeah, there's definitely definitely a tread there. Yeah, keep on moving. Right, this is their big hit. Um, I hated this, Craig. I've always hated this song. It sucks. I'm sorry if people like it. I don't know why. It is false motivation. Um, designed for like you know transitions in the Sky Sports studio. It's just really, really hackneyed and crap. And I think what what it exposes the most about Five is that like I think Five are maybe like the weakest boy band there's ever been because. None of them have a good voice, right? There's just no power to any of this. It's all flat. That's not line. a prerequisite in boy bandery. <laughs> <laughs> I love the professor of boy bandery, Craig Fitzpatrick, emerging this week. But where do you stand on five? Come on, tell me all about it. Five were they were kind of a mixed bag. It was they didn't really fall into one category, did they? Because this song doesn't really fit in with their like streetwise attitude thing. It's just so it feels like it should be an S Club song, right? And of course, it's, it's just club, the yeah. optim yeah, the optimism of it. It just feels inane to me. I don't like it one bit. I would turn off the radio when it came on. It annoyed me to hell. I don't know if it's quite poorly written enough to be like. Like I think your number two is much worse as songs go, right? I agree like, with that. This is like there's some level of skill and nouse. But I find it's the, the same kind of evil skill and nouse that went into writing like happy. Do you know yeah, what but, I mean? that, but that like I find that I find that cynical approach to music to that's be even worse. just genuinely offensive and annoying. And like the fact that if you're like you know, if you're like, I hate this song, people are like, Oh come on, man, cheer up. It might ne- this is cheer up, it might never happen the song, you know? And I can't I, will say I can't I was, abide it, Craig. <laughs> I will say, I was talking to my mother this week and um, she was talking about when she worked in Stewart's um, and kind of healthcare profession and she was working kind of nights and stuff and we were talking about boy band songs and she singled out this song as something that used to cheer her no. up on the radio when she was going into work. So, this and is, I was just like, what? This is like really? the character this witness one? that like destroys my whole case here. That's not fair. Your mother's yeah. sound, I don't want to hear that. But like, fair she enough. She also liked, um, she can have it. Did, oh, she like, Blues All Rise, I think, which is Did she like, 
what's your thoughts on Cat Among the Pigeons by Bross? Do we know that? We'll try and find that out for <laughs> next week. Play it for, play it for the whole yeah, family. Yeah. Um, before we wrap it up and go to your number one, uh, the Enemy article I referenced, right? They said that like the Five's problem came when they got sick of being puppets a few albums in and started writing their own material and declaring the charts, quote, manufactured rubbish. They broke up eventually. <laughs> Did a reunion, though, in 2007, in which I think there was like three or four of them, which, you know, structural problems, ahoy. Uh, there was a statement, though, um, that they put out in 2007 after unit is with deep regret that five announced their comeback is no more the band have decided to call it a day seven months after reforming they would like to apologize to all their fans throughout the world for any disappointment despite considerable broadcast interest in a reunion television series being secured an album being halfway completed on a world tour in the final stages of confirmation richie jay abs and scott feel like they cannot continue together so acrimony all around now before i sign off craig and throw it back to you I know you're a big fan of uh, pop quizzes, so let's do one. Oh, for f- <laughs> five had three albums. Name all three of them for five points. Um, five was the debut. That's correct. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Um, Two to go. Five plus one. Nope. <laughs> um, there might have been something playing on the Millennium. I feel like that was a. That was a go-to back in the day. Um, when Super Mario uh, takes the star, what is he? What is he? Superpower? What does, Supercharged? What does he become? <laughs> Bigger. <laughs> <laughs> the answer, Craig, is Invincible. And their third <laughs> album, you'll never get it. Oh, the star. I was thinking of a fucking mushroom. Yeah, yeah. And their third album was, I don't know, Resurrection until E17 sued them. No, it was uh, King Size. All one word. Oh, I actually remember King Size. <laughs> and that's my top five got King worst boy band songs. Got one right. That's all right. Uh, okay, let's do number one. And I mean, it's pretty obvious who it's going to be, right? The greatest boy band of all time. Um, Dave, who is it? Is it Take That? Yeah, of course it's take that. And what I will say is... <laughs> <laughs> Hold on, Adam. Just you wait one goddamn second. <laughs> it was very apparent to me within, you know, considering this list for about half an hour that it, it should have just been like, maybe aside from the Backstreet Boys sneaking in just for the sake of the show and the kind of the memories there, it could have just been five take that songs, right? And I was really struggling to just pick individual tracks from like various acts. And I was saying... They're just so cheesy. I was talking to my sister. I said, they're just so bloody cheesy, but they also have to be good. And my sister said, well, Take That did it. And I said, yeah, but they're, take that. Here's their best song. But that was not to be In the twist of separation You excelled at being free Can't you find you a little room inside It's back for good. It's not patience. Uh, this for me is the pinnacle. Second um, or third best, I would say, but continue. No, this is so magically written. It was at the height of, of their kind of initial phase. And uh, yeah, it still does it for me. It's one of those one of those songs where like the kind of, I was looking at song facts and Gary Barlow was talking about how it, it took him just 15 minutes to write this, which you hear about a lot of kind of massive songs. The record label were like, 
Um, it was around the time of their third album, 1995 ish, 1994. And they were just like, you don't have, you know, you don't have that last hit on it. You've got to come up with something apparently in 15 minutes. <laughs> and reflecting on it last year, he said, you do it just because you've been told to do it. You don't think, oh, this is so much pressure. Uh, how can I do this? You just get on with it. I was full of confidence at the time because we we're having hits all over the world. That's a good place to be as an artist. Um, they actually debuted it at the Brit Awards in 1995. It got such a big reaction that they had to bring the release date forward because people were just like, where can I get my hands on this bloody song? And it's still their biggest seller, so the people have spoken. And it's just so well-crafted. It could be, you know, they've, they've covered the Bee Gees. There was a rumour going around that, like, one of the Gibbs helped write it. Um, they didn't, actually, but you can hear why people might have thought that. It's just old-school as feck. It's great. Uh, Noel Gallagher's a big fan he's like listen if it touches people it's a good song and uh, people go on about take that but back for good it said something to me <laughs> so there the words of Noli G that's all I need to hear it's an incredible song it has also stood the test of time it's great I feel like it's like an emotional Craig anthem somehow is it? Yeah, not linked to anything specifically. Um, there was many drunken nights um, with a few mates where we would end up singing it at the tail end of the evening. It's a good karaoke song, actually. It might be w- one we tackle when we have our big karaoke sesh with all the listeners um, post-vaccination. We're, we're doing that, right? Yeah, I'm going to do Cat Among the Pigeons by Bross. It's going to be really, really good. <laughs> nice. It's going to be very emotional. Yeah, no, listen, great choice. It's... I wonder how like take that or up there now in, in the Bowie and Prince stakes, I think, for like making top fives in a positive fashion. This show adores take that. It really does. Um they're a force for good, um, as a whole, I guess. Maybe you could take issue with some of the individual members. <laughs> We've had some news stories around that. And um but no, I think, you know, Gary Barlow remains my favourite Tory. <laughs> Okay, I'll I'll come back next week with mine. I'll think about that. Uh, This episode of No Encore, as always, was engineered by the wonderful, the beautiful, the incredible, the amazing, the beloved Adam Shanahan. He makes music as my fault. He's a super producer. If you ever work with him, you're going to end up in the Spotify list on a Friday. That's how good he's... The man with the Midas touch, I would say. The golden golden record needle. That's what he is. All right, so listen. Patreon.com slash noencore if you think that this show is a golden podcast and you want to help support us. Always, always appreciated. And go back and check out recent interviews if you've missed them. We had For Those I Love. We had Regera. We're on a really, really good run. We had Michal Quinn before that. And hopefully next week, I think we we have a new episode of No Popcorn dropping. So stuff happening all the time nice. uh, constantly working away doing our thing patreon.com slash no encore if you want to sh- uh, I was going to say sh- sh- spread the love in the form of <laughs> cold hard cash uh, until next week Craig Fitzpatrick thanks very much man Dave thank you it's been fun good to have you back uh, listen, that was a fun one yeah I enjoyed it and thanks to Mango as well for his great words greatly appreciate earlier yeah, in the show yeah very much so right my name is Dave Hanready this has been no encore there shall be no encore and we'll be back in a week or possibly less who knows bye This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com. Enjoy! Thanks. The order breakfast at the McDonald's drive-thru. Tell yourself you'll wait to eat it at work, but it smells way too good. 
So you eat it right there in the McDonald's parking lot meal. There's a meal for every morning at McDonald's. Right now, get any size iced coffee for 99 cents until 11 a.m. And pair it with your favorite breakfast sandwich or one of our tasty bakery treats. Price and participation may vary. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. McDonald's. I'm loving it. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 